We are continuing on. It's our last sermon in 2 Samuel until after Advent. So we're going to be moving into Leviticus next week. So that will be wonderful. Better than you may think, my friend, if you're, if you're worried. But um, we are into chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. We'll read chapter 12, verses 1 to 15. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come in or come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. So, up until the very last verse of chapter 11, David could have been, well, we anyway as readers, may have been fooled into thinking that David got away with it. Because there's no mention of God in that whole scenario, really, when he is... Uh, covering up his plan, his murder and his adultery. Until the very last verse, it says, the thing that David did displeased the Lord. And the very next line in chapter 12, verse 1, shows, remember last week we talked about David having power. He used his royal power to satisfy his own whims. And he used that specifically in a way, we saw it by him sending people, right? Send, the word send kept happening. Well, the very first words of chapter 12 are, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. And that idea being that the real power holder has now come and is asserting his authority. That David thought he had power, and God comes and says, No, you've been found out. Someone has been watching. And what we see unfolding here, and there's, again, many ways you could go here, but one of the key things is, this is the first time you're seeing the Davidic covenant working out in practice. So remember in chapter 7, we talked about how God made a promise to David and his offspring, and said, From now on, there forever will be a Davidic king on the throne of Judah and of Israel. And that king will sin, 
but I will rebuke him and I will discipline him for the sin, but I will never let my love, my hesed, depart from him. So there'll be mercy. So he makes his covenant. And now for the first time, and it'll happen many times, we see what this covenant looks like in practice. What will actually happen? How will God deal with sin in the people, and in a group of people, a king specifically, but also translates to us? What will he do with our sin when he says he will punish it, but he will also never let us go? How do we reconcile that seeming paradox? You better obey, but I'll never let you go. So which one wins? How does that get resolved? And we see it being resolved here in this, in this play, if you will. It's real, it's a true story, but it's, it's acted out. We see covenant in practice here. And so we're going to see that what God promises to do and what he does with his power, as opposed to David, what he did with his power, is he exposes our heart, he, dis- he strikes our heart, and then he transforms our heart. Okay? So he exposes, disciplines, and transforms our heart. And this is what he promises to do. So let's jump into expose. Now, I mentioned a few months back, it was in June, I went back to check, it was in June, I mentioned a book by Fyodor Dostoevsky called The Brothers Karamazov. Now, if you like psychology but hate reading psychology books, read Russian novelists. I remember asking one of my professors at university, um, how come the Russians have no famous philosophers in the 19th century? They're all German and so on. He said, because the Russians didn't write philosophy, they wrote novels. And they pour their philosophy and their psychology into these novels. And so read them. Read Crime and Punishment. Read Brothers Karamazov. Read War and Peace. Because they tell us so much about humanity. And in Brothers Karamazov, there's a story about a broken, dysfunctional family, brothers. And at one point, two of the brothers are in a pub. One is Alyosha, who is a, a monk in the Russian Orthodox Church. And the other one is a guy named Dmitri, who is a brother who is bold and brash, very passionate unsure about the existence of God. And they're having this discussion. And at one point, Alyosha, the monk, turns to him and says, but what will become of men then, without God and immortal life? All things are lawful then. They can do what they like. And then Dimitri says, uh, didn't you know, Dimitri said laughing, a clever man can do what he likes. Now, this is the famous, very famous line that people often paraphrase and say what Dostoevsky is saying is this. Without Immortality, there is no immorality. Without God, everything is permissible. And it's very, he's right, very simple. If there is no afterlife, then don't give a fig for consequences of your sin if you can get away with it. Because you're going to die, and no one's ever going to call you to account. You'll never be held accountable, so do whatever you'd like in the world. Just cover it up really well. Because when you're dead, who cares if the world finds out that you were a fraud? You're dead. You're not going to care. It's blackness. It's oblivion. And if they do find out, well, then you're in trouble. So what Dostoevsky is saying is exactly what David has fallen into the trap of believing. It's called functional atheism, and Christians do it all the time. We live as if there is not a a God. And we think, it's okay, as long as nobody sees it, as long as it doesn't come out, I'll cover it up. And we see in the the media how the world covers up things, covers up all the time. This is why half of us are conspiracy theorists. You're terrified that everybody's covering up something. Because deep down, you're covering up something. That you're actually much more rotten than you let anybody know. And so David has fallen for this, right? David has fallen for this and he believes, I can, if I just get away with it, I'll be okay. But when Nathan shows up and says, you're wrong. There is a God, there is an afterlife, and you will be held accountable. Not just then, but there's also consequences here and now. 
it's a worldview struggle at that moment. And God shows up and says, it's real, justice is real, and it's inescapable. But unlike what people think about God in Canada, and many Christians too, God is not a bureaucrat. See, we often think about God of the Bible being a God who's just concerned about balancing the ledger. Remember, if you ever go to Service Ontario because you know, your license is expired or something, these wonderful people work there, so I don't want to condemn anybody who works there. But let's face it, you have a menu, and it says, here's the, the, the infraction or the question or the issue, and here's the price that they must pay. License is expired, fill out this form, $80 fee, whatever it is. Because a bureaucrat is only concerned with that. That's their job. And we need that to keep the system going. But that is not who God is. When God shows up, we know he's not a bureaucrat. Because you know what the bureaucrats at Service Ontario never do? They never say, Mr. Santos, your, your um, license is expired. I think you have a time management problem in your life. I think you've got to sort your life out. It's a mess, Carl. What's $80 thrown out the window? You know, they don't do that. And the reason is they don't care about me. And I, I'm not knocking them. That's not their job, to care and to transform my life. Their job is to collect a debt or to do something, a task. And God, however, shows up. And when he shows up to David, we could say, hey, he's just a bureaucrat. He's just smacking David's hand because he's done something wrong. Or we could see what is actually going on in the story, which is he is not exacting a fee, but exposing the heart. And it's a very big difference. And it's a key part of God because he comes and he could say, David, adultery, punishable by death. Murder, punishable by death pay up. That's what he could have said, but he doesn't. Instead, what he does through the parable and through all of it is he reveals what David has done, but he also reveals why he has done it. See, there's a reason. He doesn't want to just say, it's a crime, let me collect the debt. He says, you need to know what you've done wrong exactly and why it's wrong. Because he has a different plan than to just smack us around. So the first thing he does, he says, this is what you've done. And have you noticed that the parable doesn't talk about adultery directly or about murder? directly. Now, yes, he's trying to be subtle. He doesn't want to tip David off, you know, and, and have David realize the rat. Uh, and, you know, imagine if David had figured the parable was aimed at him, he'd say, well, you know, I mean, he needed the lamb. He could have just got around it. But it's not what happened. Instead, Nathan and God, through Nathan, uses a parable about devouring. Think about it. It's literally saying that a man is hungry, so he eats your pet which is pretty appalling, isn't it? If somebody came over and said, it's Thanksgiving, no turkey, get me your dog. That's not, it's, it's horrible. You would never think of doing that. And the idea that God is putting across to David is very clear. It's not merely that you have taken a thing. Remember last week we talked about how Bathsheba was, was reduced to property. It's not that you've taken a thing, David. You've devoured somebody. And a marriage, you've ruined the marriage. You've eaten it up hungrily, greedily for yourself. And it's wrong what you've done. See, and what's very important here to note is, and if you read Psalm 51, which is David's uh, repenting psalm in this scenario, you see something. That God talks a lot about how he has been despised. He doesn't say you owe Bathsheba something or you owe the family something. He says you've despised me. He talks about himself, about God. And that's not because God is a glory hog. It's not because he doesn't understand but this is very simple. You cannot hurt anyone without first hurting God. No sin comes unless you have first sinned against God. When I strike a man to murder him, 
It's because that in, a, in that moment, before I ever take an, a, a swing at the gentleman, I have displaced God and the anger or the frustration unseat God from the throne of my heart. I have wronged God and then comes the sin towards you. Sin is always vertical before it is horizontal, always. And this is why he's getting to the bottom. He could just come and smack a fine on David. And it might modify the behavior, but it would never change the heart. So God comes not as a bureaucrat. He shows up and exposes the heart, not the issue. The heart that led to the issue is the much bigger problem. And then he says, this is why you have done it. And it's not, see, it's not just that he has done something wrong, but the reason you've done this wrong, David, is because you're actually entirely discontented with me, with God. And think about this. God comes up, and he shows up, and you see the, the paradox of the wording. He says, I gave you. He says the word gave repeatedly. I gave you Saul's palace, his crown, the lands, the women. I gave you everything you wanted. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you even more. But what does it say? But you took. You took. You took. Remember, we talked about it last time. We talked about how Saul or Samuel mentioned the king would take. And what God is saying in this whole transaction is this. David, my job as God is to give and to take. Your job is to receive. If I give you $10 in your bank account, be content. Because I know what you need to be healthy and to be happy. You think you need a million dollars. You think you need more women. And I'm telling you, I designed you. I know what will make you happy and what won't. Be content. And that's an important message for us. Who of us isn't striving for more? Doesn't anybody just want a little bit more money? Doesn't anybody just want a little bit more peace at home? Don't you want just a little bit of a, a more understanding spouse? And it's so easy to think, well, because I don't have it, then I should go take it. And God is saying, your job is not to take. Your job is to receive. And trust that I can do this. But David, in taking Bathsheba, is saying, I'm not so sure he knows what I need, because that would make me happy. And so every time David grasps at something, or you and I, it's a discontentment. Every sin, despising God, holding something in low value is what despising means. He is despising it, saying, I, you haven't given me enough. Thank you for the, what you've given me, which for David is quite a bit. Thank you for that, but it's not enough. He has despised not just God, but also his word. He has said, I don't care about murder and adultery in the, in the law, which David knows very well. Instead, I'm just going to do what I want. So he's despised God. So he shows David deep in his heart that the problem is discontentment. And God does this. He exposes the heart because he wants transformation, not behavioral modification. So it's the first thing he does. He exposes the depth, not just our sin, but the depth of where it comes from, the wellspring of sin. Then he also disciplines, he strikes our heart. It's difficult. I'm going to give you a tip here that hopefully will save you heartache when you read the Bible. Um, when you read David ranting about this man who has stolen the lamb, it's hard not to either laugh or feel superior to him, isn't it? Because you like the nerve of this guy. He's ranting against this person, though he is guilty of the same thing. And it's very easy to come away from that despising David and thinking, not me. And we do the same thing with the disciples, right? Because the disciples are, seem a little slow-witted. And it's easy to say, oh, if I had Jesus and I saw him turn water into wine and heal the blind men, I would never leave him. Yeah, you would. You're doing it now. I've said it before. At least Judas took 30 pieces of silver to betray Christ. You do it for nothing. So do I. And we have to be careful. So when the Bible is setting you up and making you feel like judging another person, understand that they're playing you. God and the Bible writers are 
doing that on purpose. They're trying to make you feel how outrageous David is so that one day you will be like David and you look in the mirror and say, I'm David. I am the man. I am the woman. And so be careful. Whenever you're feeling like David, jerk, I wouldn't be like that. Remember, that's you. That's a, a little bit of a tidbit for you. Now, when he does this, we love it, don't we? We love doing what David does. It's like he's sitting around coffee. We've done this. You sit with your friends, and it's easy to judge presidents, prime ministers, people when they don't do something. Anybody, pastors, friends, kids. We, we judge everybody. We're really good at it. And I remember being in the car in the winter of 1989. Okay, This is why it's important. It's going to sound strange, but I was there, and that was the day that notorious serial killer Ted Bundy was going to be electrocuted and killed in Florida. If anybody remembers, I remember that day, but remembers Ted Bundy. And I'm in the car with my parents, and the radio announcer says, hey, everybody, remember today to conserve energy. Let's give Ted an extra jolt. Now, okay, it got a chuckle out of me when I was 13. However, you see what that implies? We love to judge other people. We, we take great joy in seeing them struggle. We want to see people who we think are bad people get punished. We adore it. But there's a problem with it. David does something here, and it shows us, we see in the light of this, in the light of this judgment, God shows up. And David shows one, two things. First, he says, the man should repay what he is, this, the man who stole the lamb should repay fourfold. So it shows he's read Exodus 22. Because Exodus 22, verse 1 says, if, if you steal a sheep or a lamb, Repay it for fourfold. But then he says, and he should die, because he didn't feel pity. Now that's above and beyond. Nothing in Scripture says you kill somebody for, for theft. So David goes above and beyond, and that's kind of what we do, right? We want to throw the book at people. We want to give Ted Bundy an extra jewel. That's what we want to do. But God shows up and says, well, here, I'm not going to kill you, David. I'm not going to take your words and use your own words against you. But I, there's going to be consequences. He does strike David. There are consequences. Well, David in some way strikes himself, but we can't absolve God because God does this. God says, I'm going to do this to you. So what does he do? First thing he does, he says, the sword will never depart from your house. This sin of yours is going to be hereditary. It's going to echo through the generations of your family. And it's not coincidental that David says, let the man repay four lambs, right? Four lambs for the one stolen. And what, is David's sons, what happens to David's sons? The unnamed child dies. Amnon dies. Absalom dies. Adonijah dies. Four. Is it an accident? Pretty big coincidence. That David gets that. Because his sin, God is saying, you need to see that there's echoes, there's, there's consequences. That the way you behave, your children will pick up. So that's going to, it's never going to depart, and we see the mess that happens in the life of David's families. Then, evil will come from within your house. His wives will be given to a neighbor, and so on. It'll all be done in public. Now, this comes true in the, in the way of Absalom. Absalom, David's son, will rebel against him, and will take his concubines and sleep with them on the roof of the palace publicly. And the message here is quite simple. You have ruined a family. Your family is now ruined because of what you've done. There's consequences. And the most harsh one is this last one. The child born to you shall die. Now everything in us recoils because we love justice, but when a child, it's difficult to feel anything but horror when a child suffers. It's very difficult. And we wonder, what is God doing? It seems unfair. The wrong person is suffering here. It seems odd. Now, it's funny. Commentators will often try to justify God. 
and to, to say, well, you know, well, there's reasons here. And one of the, the most popular one is, listen, look at how bad all David's other kids turned out. This child may have grown up and been even worse. So he made, this is a grace that he died. That's a stupid thing to say. And I'll say why it's stupid. First, the text doesn't tell us that. If the Bible doesn't tell us it, then be careful about these comments. Second, I would say this, there's a reason we're not given the reason. We are told to simply sit in the uncomfortable truth that sin is costly. It's not just a plaything. It's not just, oh, I took the wrong cookie, now I'll just repay the cookie. It's, we, want to, we want to trivialize sin, and continually in Scripture, God is saying, it's very serious. It's very serious. So we have to sit in this fact and say, we don't know what the logic was here by God. We simply know what we do know, which is sin is horrible. And there's an incredibly high cost for it. And we're going to see later, I think, how some of this gets played out. So, here's what we need to know. Why does God do it at all, though? See, we, we struggle with God punishing us. And I think it's because we use the word punish instead of the word discipline. So, punishing is to... Um, it's, it's a penalty as retribution for some kind of an act. It's payback. It's punitive, usually. Discipline, however, is, might have a punishment, but it is done with the aim of instructing and changing. So, um, here's an example. There's this play called The Shadowlands by a man uh, writing about C.S. Lewis's uh, relationship with his uh, wife, eventual wife, Joy Davidson. It's called The Shadowlands. And in it, this is one of the words, the, the quote attributed to Lewis. We're like blocks of stone, out of which the sculptor carves the forms of men. The blows of his chisel, which hurt us so much, are what make us perfect. The suffering in this world is not the failure of God's love for us. It is that love in action. And so, the striking of David is harsh. It hurts. It can even feel appalling to you. But, if that's the case, and we trust God, then we have to see that the blow of the chisel, though it hurts, is making us something. That it's not striking. See, here's the, the, the great tragedy about punishment. Punishment is driven by wanting to strike the guy who struck you. That's what punishment is. You hit me, I hit you back. If you don't know that, just watch traffic accidents and road rage. Watch children. We see that. There's a desire to hit the other person. That is punishment. But this is not what God does, because punishment is for you. I love meeting it out. Discipline is for the other person. I do it for their sake. There's actually no anger necessarily in the discipline. It's a matter of, I'm doing this so that you will see, so that you will come to be something I need you to be, I want you to become. And this is what God is doing. He strikes our hearts because he cares enough to want to transform us. So he does this. He exposes our hearts, he strikes our hearts, and then he lastly will transform them. Think about why David or Nathan even uses a parable to begin with. <laughs> if God wanted to just condemn David, he could have just condemned David. He did it to Saul. He could have just said, you've done something wrong. So why is the parable used? What's the point of using a parable instead of direct? Well, the only answer is because he is trying to bring David to repentance. He's trying to show him something. He wants David to get to a place of seeing his own sin. Again, because if you're just a policeman, and listen, I love policemen, I'm not knocking them, but you don't go and try to bring the criminal to repentance first. right? You incarcerate them. And then you put them in jail, which, by the way, once upon a time, well-meaning Christians could call them jails. They call them penitentiaries. Because the point was you go there, you become penitent. 
Not so much now. I'm not so sure that penitence, they may want to, they want to modify your behavior. They want you to become a non-threat to society, but they don't really care about your heart. No, they don't really necessarily want you to be a good, upstanding human being, except for your actions. And yet, what, David, what God clearly wants here is to bring David to a spot where he sees his fault. He's trying to show David to himself. And here's where I have one little beef with the way we sometimes read this passage. We come away thinking, boy, look at David, he repented. That's why David is loved by God, because he repents where Saul didn't. I would be very careful about trying to make it sound like David was saved by his repentance. He's not. He's saved by God's grace. David's repentance doesn't save him. God saves him. Right? I know it sounds very harsh, but we have to know that. Because remember, David didn't repent until he had to. We can't call David a saint here. I mean, he's out there sleeping with another man's wife and murdering people, and then he finally repents when he's forced to, and we say, well done, David. No, not well done, David. It's well done, God. How could he be that gracious? That's where we should be coming away from. David, yes, he repents. Wonderful. Good for him. I don't want to be David. I want to never do the things in the first place. And the one thing we can take from David is this. He realizes he has no hope of God. So at the point of being found out, which we are all guilty of at some point, he falls at the feet of God, especially in Psalm 51, if you read that in parallel. And you see he falls down and says, I have nothing but mercy. There's no reason. There's nothing legally. I have no legal leg to stand on. If God doesn't save me by grace, I'm finished. In that regard, we can say, that's what we, we want to model that. We have to fall on the grace of God. But the question then remains, why should, they, should God save us? You see, and even if he does, listen, how many of us have repented for things that you've just done again the next day or the next week? Or, see, repentance is good, but don't you want to stop having to repent of the same things? Over and over, I certainly do. And then how do we do that? And how does it go from... This, just, you know, every, every time we repent, we repent, to being people who actually turn around. See, repentance is the word shuv in Hebrew, which means to turn around. And a 180. Now, how do we actually do that? How do I say, I'm a gossip, I'm no longer going to gossip, and I actually stop gossiping? How can we possibly do it? Because I'm not so sure I can do it. Now, here, let's, let's try to figure this out. In this story, David or Nathan comes and he says, you are the man. Remember the very famous line. And David, although he changes, he doesn't, he's not transformed because David is going to continue to sin right up until his death. We won't get the first king, but I assure you, David in his last days behaves more like a mafia kingpin than he does like a king who loves God. And he's broken. He's a human. So how do we go there? And when Nathan shows up, he says, you are the man to David. And we have to remember, put ourselves in the place. You and I are the man. We are being exposed. When Nathan points the finger at David, we are being exposed. God is saying, you are the men and the women. You are the ones, just like David, who have no hope but grace. We are to be in his shoes and to see that, remember that old hymn, that Christ has regarded my helplessness. We're helpless before God. So David throws himself on the mercy of God. But what is our hope? What is the hope? Why can we hope for salvation with, for this repentance, which, let's face it, our repentance isn't even, isn't even sincere half the time. As a pastor, a lot of people repent, but they repent because they're sorry about the fact that they're hurting from the consequences. You know, I think I've said this before. It's, it's, it's normal to see a man who's cheated on his wife come and say, or vice versa, and come and say, you know, pastor, go talk to them. Uh, I want to go back home. She won't let me back home. 
And I say, he's like, I'm repentant, I'm repentant, I'm repentant. And I say, okay, you're repentant, why? Well, because I want to be back home. See, he still doesn't know that he hurt his wife. He just wants everything to feel better. And this is us. So why should God accept our repentance? Well, the answer comes in a parallel where this very, almost exact same line is repeated, but in Greek later by Pontius Pilate in chapter 19, verse 5 of John. He brings Jesus out before the crowds and says, here is the man. Remember that? Now, if when God points at us and says, you are the man, he is revealing us to ourselves. When he, when he comes and says, here is the man, he is revealing the character of God to us. And because, and I'm going to explain why this means, but because Jesus is the man, we then have hope. But let me explain what happens. Pilate's words do this, and Jesus is standing before the crowds. At that moment, he is the sin bearer, right? He's bearing sin. He's, he is the man bearing our iniquity. And he is completely transformed by the sin. When, when our sin is laid on Christ, something happens that I don't know if people see all the time. Isaiah 52, verse 14, which isn't up on the screen because I, I don't write these things down, is this. It says that the man, this Messiah, is marred beyond all recognition doesn't even look human to the people around him. And he's talking about the Messiah. What does he mean? He means that when Christ is on the cross, he is so disfigured and marred by sin that he won't even appear to be human. And because he was transformed into sin for our sake, we can then be transformed into righteousness because of what he did. Because he is the man, we are no longer the man accountable. And that's the only hope that David had was that this sin would be paid for. God looked ahead and said, oh, even this old sin is covered by what my son is going to do. And because Christ did that, because he accepted the faith that David deserved, we get the faith Christ did, which is right standing before God. It's incredible. Instead of hearing, you are the man, we now get to be told, well done. Well done. Even David is going to be told, I presume, well done, good and faithful servant despite this litany of offenses. And it's not because God is a soft heart. Skeptics are always saying, how can you, a pedophile, a rapist, a murderer, a dictator be absolved of his guilt just by repenting? It seems so frivolous. Stop it. That's because you minimize what happened on the cross. You think it's frivolous because you think nothing happened on the cross. It's just words. That's not the truth. What happens on the cross is the death of God for us. The price is not small. It's far greater than David's son far greater than your lives and mine. And I know that's difficult to see, and people without faith won't see it. They'll still think I'm crazy. But those of us who have seen, we look at it, and when we see here is the man, we should rejoice. I mean, I'm always, I'm always quite excited, but I'm especially excited when I hear those words. Thank him. And this is part of what's going on in this passage. Let's pray.